We are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have your copy of scripture, I want to invite you to turn there to Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. We have been making our way through Paul's great letter to the Ephesians. Uh, This is one of the great letters that explains the mystery of God's grace. What is grace? How does it operate? How does it come to us? What does it do among us? Why why should we um, allow our minds and hearts to be filled with great gratitude for God's grace in the gospel? And what impact should it then have on our lives in the various spheres in which we find ourselves? Um, if you are visiting with us this morning, we're looking at Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, and I want to go ahead and just tell you, I promise you, if I knew you were visiting, I would not randomly pick servants and masters to preach on. But this is God's word, and it's part of the exposition, and it is full of instruction for us. And even though it is a difficult passage, not in its content, but in the subject matter, We're going to try to deal with it carefully. Um, We have just seen here in Ephesians 6, as Paul is applying the gospel to those various spheres in which we live, that he has first applied it to uh, husbands and wives, and then within the context of the family, to children and parents. And and we saw, if you were with us last Lord's Day, how balanced um, God is in all of his dealings, in all of our relationships, so perfectly balanced. We're going to see more of that this morning as we look at Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. And now as Paul continues on in this applicatory section, he writes, Bond servants, or literally slaves, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same thing to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there may very well come a time in your life when you find yourself in an exceedingly difficult life circumstance. Uh, That has been true for saints throughout the last two millennia. Many saints have found themselves in very difficult life circumstances. And when they have found themselves in those circumstances, by the way, many of us have never found ourselves in very difficult life circumstances in this country, But when the better part of God's people have found themselves in those difficult circumstances, they have reached up to lay hold of the God who has reached down and laid hold of them in the gospel. And they have sought from the Lord in the gospel how they can make it through those very difficult circumstances. It's been in those circumstances that they have had to say to themselves, do I really believe that the gospel works here? even in the most menial 
of my situations and the most difficult of my circumstances. I was thinking as I prepared for this of the account of Helen uh, Berhain. She was a famous singer in Eritrea, is a, a famous singer. She's alive today. In 2006, she was arrested for making CDs of her music because the Eritrean government had shut down Protestant churches and were severely persecuting Christians in that country, many of whom had to flee. The persecution was so intense. And Helen Berhane was arrested. She was thrown in a metal box in 120 degree temperatures there in that very brutal African country. And for 36 months, she was severely beaten by the Eritrean government for her faith in Christ, refusing to denounce the faith. Um, she's written an autobiography called Song of a Nightingale, in which she recounts in very careful detail how she made it through that suffering, that extreme suffering that brought her almost to the point of death. She had to be hauled off to medics several times to keep her alive, and then she was brought back and beaten more, and taken to medics and brought back and beaten more, to the point where she thought she was going to die. The Lord spared her. And in one of the accounts, Helen Berhane is said to have come out of that metal container and to the man who beat her the most, who couldn't break her spirit and get her to denounce her faith in Christ. And she threw her arms around him and she said, I love you and I'm praying for you. Listen, that's real Christianity. That's not the stuff that we do in our homes. That's real Christianity. And at the end of her book, this is what Helen writes. I have learned to be content in small places and to thank God in spite of hardships. She says, although humans are limited in what they can do, God is unlimited. He was with me in prison. He was with me in Sudan. She then fled to Denmark. He is with me in Denmark, and I know that he will be with me wherever I go. Now that's, as I said, that's real Christianity. This is, not, this is not the faux Christianity of the veneer of America and materialism and programmatic Christianity and everything else that we know. This is, this is where the gospel works in those small and difficult places. And the Apostle Paul is seeking to address that very issue here when he comes to take up the subject of masters and servants. And we're going to talk about that social institution and the, the background of the Greco-Roman world and what was going on in the first century in a moment. But when he comes to take this up, the Apostle is concerned with giving the Christians that he's writing to who find themselves in various stations in their circumstances, in society. He is interested in saying the gospel works everywhere, and if it can't work in the relationship of a servant and a master in that society, in that time, then, then we can't expect it to work anywhere. It has to be able to work in the most difficult of places. Now, I was thinking about this before I say anything else. I was thinking about many of the things I'm going to say today, and I, I have a, a sneaking suspicion that many Christians in America, maybe even in our own denomination, maybe even in this church, would hate to hear these things. We need to hear them. If the gospel can't work in the most difficult or the most menial circumstance in which we find ourselves, then we can't have any confidence that it's going to work anywhere else. And Paul is saying, let me 
reach down to the most difficult of those circumstances in the first century Greco-Roman world, let me tell you how the gospel works. Now, we're going to see three things this morning. First, we're going to consider the requirement of servants to masters, masters to servants. And then we're going to consider the rationale behind the requirement. And then we're going to consider the reward, the requirement, the rationale, and the reward. Well, notice Paul says there, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Now, before I look at the requirement for servants here, let me say this. It is estimated that at least one-third of every single individual in the Roman Empire was a slave. I want you to understand how pervasive this institution was. Paul is not commending the institution of slavery, nor is he condemning the institution of slavery. What Paul is doing is he's recognizing the prevalence of this institution in the Greco-Roman world, and he's acknowledging that many of the men and women who have come to faith in Christ have done so while in that life circumstance, that they came to know Christ when they were slaves. Paul will deal with this in an expanded way in 1 Corinthians. He'll say, was anyone called while free? Don't seek to be in bondage. Was anyone called while a slave? Don't seek to be freed. And then parenthetically, Paul says, but if you can get free, get free. Paul's desire and issue is not to address the institution of slavery per se. He is addressing believers who find themselves in that situation, and he is saying, if you want to understand what bearing the gospel can have on where you are right now, in the, the situation in which you find yourself, in the society in which you live right now, this is what bearing the gospel has. I love this. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says, the Christian gospel works even in a social order that we find intolerable. Don't miss this. If you just fill your mind with everything on Twitter, you are going to miss this. Listen to me carefully. This is God's word. And Sinclair is right. The gospel works even in a social order we find intolerable. He says in our own country, the idea of slavery is an abomination and has been, thankfully, for centuries. Everything within us revolts against the idea that one person should come into the ownership and domination of another. But what the Apostle Paul is saying by the way in which he addresses slaves and masters is that even in a social relationship and context of which we would say that is utterly intolerable, Paul is able to say, here the diamond of the gospel of Christ's grace shines even more brightly and the gospel works. That's amazing. Listen, if, if we don't believe that, then there's no hope for your marriage. There's no hope when you have wayward children. There's no hope when you lose a job. Because those are the lesser intolerable things. If it won't work in the most intolerable, we have no confidence that it's going to work in the less intolerable circumstances. Martin Lloyd-Jones just 
because this is such a difficult passage. Let me read this. Lloyd-Jones says, when Paul comes to servants and masters, he doesn't begin to give his views as a Christian on the question of slavery. Um, his interest is how they are to conduct themselves as Christians in that situation. Now, I want to say this, because if you're visiting and this is the first time you've heard a sermon in the 21st century on slaves and masters, let me say this. It was Christians who abolished chattel slavery. It was men like William Wilberforce who led to the abolition of slavery. It was the gospel that ultimately resulted in overthrowing what was an evil situation. And let me say this, when the Apostle Paul comes in 1 Timothy to speak about the institution of slavery, he in no uncertain terms says that it was absolutely evil and worthy of the death penalty to kidnap and oppress someone else. You see, Paul is loosely taking what was in parlance, understanding that many of these were indentured servants who had sold themselves into slavery, and he is not addressing that issue so much as the relationship. Additionally, let me say this, you will notice that Paul is addressing those who profess faith in Christ. He is not first and foremost saying, here's how a believing servant is to function in an unbelieving home. A, a unbelieving master is to deal with the believing service or an, servant or any other dynamic. He is teaching them both that God is going to give them responsibilities. Because he understood, and I need to say this this morning, the apostle understood very well that if a, a slave had run away, that the, the, the penalty under Roman rule was death. It was the death penalty. We know that, that Paul deals so wisely when Onesimus, that unbelieving slave, runs away from Philemon, and then he's converted, and then Paul sends him back, and he says, I tell you, receive him as a brother. Paul understood he had to function in that context, and he had to give the requirement of God to believers that found themselves were presumably converted while in those relationships. And so the first word that he gives is to slaves. He tells them, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, just as he had told wives to submit to husbands and children to obey parents, he is now speaking in the context of those role relationships in society. And, and he's saying to the, the Christian servant, obey your masters with fear and with trembling. Show them respect. Um, the, the first century literature teases out for us in great detail the way that servants oftentimes disrespected um, those who were over them in that relationship and how prevalent that was. And this is, this is countercultural what Paul's telling them to do. And he's telling them to do it so that they bear witness to Christ be, behind that relationship ultimately is their other master, is the Lord Jesus. We're going to see that in a moment. But then notice there's this perfect balance that no sooner has Paul addressed bond servants that he turns and he addresses masters. Notice verse 9, masters do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, there is no partiality with him. This is marvelous. This would have been totally countercultural in the first century Greco-Roman world. 
Because in that day, slaves had zero value in the eyes of citizens of the Roman Empire. Listen to this, John Calvin, noting this. He says, the world is accustomed to place little value on the labor of a slave, but God esteems them as highly as the duties of kings. Don't miss that. The Lord places value both on what they are to do because they are valuable, as well as protecting them and placing responsibilities on those who in that social order were placed over them. Um, I want to be cautious because many ministers today will rush to the analogy of employers and employees. It's vastly different uh, because if your employer tells you to do something and you don't want to do it, you can just walk away. You're not going to get a paycheck. But the Lord doesn't say, go back there and do it no matter what. It is different. And yet there is an application, isn't there? How does the gospel shape my vocation? How does it shape the way in which I respect my employer? How does it shape the way in which I treat employees? Um, There's this great story R.C. Sproul tells of being invited to talk to a bunch of executives at a Fortune 500 meeting, and it was a board meeting. Many of the presidents and vice presidents were at this meeting, and Sproul tells the story. He he says that... um, As he was talking to them about the relationship of Christian ethics and their business practices, he could tell that people were very uncomfortable that he would bring religion into the context of business. And as he did his talk and and he brought it to the end, he said that he noticed that um, one of the, the chief executives who was there, the chairman of the board, got pretty excited and his eyes lit up. And Sproul said that that he came up to him afterwards. And he said, I I think I've understood what you've been saying. Um, He said, let me see if I can connect it. What I hear is that our business life is affected by how we treat people. How we treat people is a matter of ethics. Ethics are determined by our philosophy. Our philosophy reflects our theology. This guy must have been listening to some sprawl to do this. So, respecting people is really a theological matter. He got it. Respecting people. How we treat others. I think I've told you the story. I had a... One of the most infelicitous interactions with a man once who asked me for his help. I said, I've got a meeting I've got to go to. And he said, I want a pastor I can control. And I said, well, it stinks for you. It's not going to be me. Um, If how we treat each other is, I want you to do what I want, then there's something horribly wrong with our understanding of the gospel. Because the gospel empties us of that. It straightens out all our relationships. It says, servants, obey your masters. Masters, do not threaten your servants. In the worst situation, in the in the social setting that none of us would want in this society. And thank God we do not have today. Even there, the gospel works, which means it can work everywhere else. Um, Notice that Paul moves in both of these to the rationale. Notice this, he says, 
in verse 6, don't do this by way of eye service as people pleasers. You know, um, we're going to have a very brief meeting after this where we're going to talk about joyful service this year ahead and what joyful service looks like. Um, In my 15, almost 15 years of pastoral ministry, I have seen in my own heart and I have witnessed in others how so often we seek to serve with wrong motives. We want to be seen. We do it because nobody else is, and we want to show them that we'll do it even though they won't. That's a sneaky one. We, there, are, there are a dozen wrong motives for service. And Paul gives us what is the right motive here. If we take it out of the context of servants and masters, he says, not by way of eye service, not to be seen by men. I had a woman, I told you this once, who said to me, I just love to serve for reputation. She was not sorry about it. She was almost telling me what she enjoyed. Not by way of eye service. Not as men pleasers. But... As servants of Christ, you see, if I take to myself the mindset that I am a servant of Christ and that whatever service I render, whether it be in the vocation in which God has called me or in the other settings in which I find myself, and I recognize that my service is ultimately not to other people but to the Lord himself who has bought me, then I will not do it out of eye service. I will not do it as seeking to please other people or get their praise. But I will do it seeking to do the will of God from the heart, Paul says, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. Um, Think about how that will transform how we're viewed in the workplace if we work for others. Um, Twenty-some years ago, I sought to put this into practice in... um, a restaurant I worked in where just about everybody did the least amount they could do. And, and I, sought to, I sought to work as hard as I could because I wanted to put this into practice. And on one occasion, somebody asked me if I was on cocaine because they were all so lazy and I was out there waiting all the tables. Um, it's, it's countercultural. It's countercultural. When you do this, it will be evident that you are different in your service because only Christians can do this. The gospel only works in the lives of believers. And, and we learn this, don't we, from Christ himself, who became a bigger servant than the Lord Jesus. He's actually called the suffering servant in Isaiah, that he is the Ebed Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. He came to serve, not to be served. His entire life was service, to redeem us. His entire life was pouring himself out as unto his father for your redemption. And so if I want to learn how to do this in my vocation, in my calling, in my life circumstances, if we want to ever even get remotely close to Helen and what she did, then we have to understand what Christ did and we have to follow in his footsteps. I've hit on this several times this year. The Lord Jesus was such a servant that when none of the other disciples would do the most menial task of taking up the basin and the towel, which was the job of the servant, the Lord Jesus got up and did it. The Lord of glory was not beneath taking up the basin and the towel. When the Apostle Paul 
was in prison and he was under prison guards and he was on that ship and they got stuck in the storm and they shipwrecked on Malta. What did Paul do? Paul went and picked up sticks and started a fire for his captors. That's what this looks like in practice. That's, that's how what Christ does shapes what Paul is telling us that we are to do. And then notice there is a rationale also for the masters. Notice this, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Here Paul is addressing them and saying, whatever station you have in life, whatever position you have, wherever you are, whatever exalted uh, vocational status you may have, at the end of the day, we are nothing. We are nothing. There is only one master. There is only one Lord. There is only one ruler. James will say there's only one lawgiver. Any, any exalted status that we have in society is delegated and transient and temporary. And behind it, the same principle that goes for those in the lowest position go for those in the highest. Isn't that marvelous? There is a perfect balance in the gospel. There is a perfect balance in what God requires. There is absolute justice and equality. Um, you know, it's very interesting. Charles Spurgeon, when he looks at these rationales and, and he focuses on that verse, verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, he, he calls that, as to Christians, he says that's our motto. Is that your motto? Is your motto rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man? Um, that should be the motto of all believers. I want, to, I want to render faithful service to the Lord. I'm not here to be seen by others. I'm not here to lord it over others. I'm not here to get my own way. I'm not here to do this because I like position. Do you know how many professing Christians do what they do because they want position and status? That's not our motto. As rendering service to the Lord, you have a master who is both theirs and yours in heaven. There is no partiality with him. Um, if that's coming across hard, let me say this this morning. I see so many of you doing that in this church, and I am so grateful. I want us to keep doing that. Keep seeking to pour ourselves out joyfully in service to Christ. That's such a privilege we get. Letting the gospel shape our hearts and minds in such a way that we'll do that. Now, there is a reward. Notice this is not stoicism. Paul is not saying just suck it up, take it, and die. Notice, he says there's going to be a reward. And you've got to get that. There is a reward that the Lord holds out for this. Notice this, knowing, he says knowing, verse 8, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free, whatever good, whatever good, there is a reward. God is taking note. You know what's one of the most marvelous verses in the Bible? I've, I'm... 20-some years a Christian, and I still can't get past this verse. 
the writer to the Hebrews is, is challenging them not to turn back because they're being tempted to forsake their profession and go back to Judaism and temple worship to avoid persecution. And, and in the context of addressing all those things, the writer of Hebrews says to them, remember, the Lord is not unjust to forget the way that you are ministering and have ministered to his people. The Lord is not unjust to forget the way that you minister and have ministered to his people. Another verse that ought to amaze us is that Jesus says, whoever gives one of these little ones, believers, a cup of water in my name, it'll be given back to him. Have you ever thought about that? That is literally the most menial thing you can do is give someone a cup of water when they're thirsty. And the God in heaven says that he is taking note even of that when you do it with the right heart and right motives. Let me say this as we kind of walk out of this this morning. Just like I said last week, it would be wrong for you to get in your car and ask your spouse if they were listening to the sermon. It is always wrong for us to be like, why doesn't so-and-so do more? So-and-so should be doing more. I can't tell you how many times I've heard in the church people saying things like that about other members of the church. And it happens in subtle ways. It happens behind closed doors. It happens in our homes. It happens on the phone. Every time we catch ourselves saying that, we should stop and say, Lord, make me a servant. Make me one that does it joyfully as unto you as bond servants of Christ. Make me do it not for the praise of men, not to be seen by men, but to do it before your all-watching eyes. And if you put me in places where I have authority over others in the vocation in which you have put me, make me one who serves you as the ultimate one in authority. Because at the end of the day, that's all there are is, is the Lord himself. And after all of the social animus and hostility, after all the infelicitous social constructs come to an end on Judgment Day, it is going to be me and the Lord. It's going to be you and the Lord. Your spouse is not going to stand there and answer to the Lord for you. You will not be able to answer to the Lord for your children, and they will not be able to answer for you. It will be our relationship with the true and living God and so the apostle says, listen, in all that you do, do it as a bondservant of Christ. Whether it is in the workplace, in the church, or in the home. Let that be, as Spurgeon said, let that be our motto. I want to read that verse again. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Let that be our motto, doing services unto the Lord and not to men. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that this is a difficult subject, and we recognize that these are challenging words, and yet we thank you and praise you that you have breathed them out. 
We thank you that you have taught us how we are to live in the most difficult circumstances, whether it be uh, life situations, whether it be persecution, whether it be within the realm of our vocations. We do ask, our God, that you would give us grace to have a single-minded focus on the Lord Jesus. Would you teach us from uh, the work of his redemption, from what he wrought when he redeemed us in serving us, how we too are to be servants like our master, and would you make us a people who seek to serve, to be seen by one, even by our Lord Jesus. And so, our God, would you stir us up in our minds and our hearts, that we would long to be doing this. Would you give us grace that the gospel might enter into the most menial tasks in which we are engaged? Our God, would you do this for your glory and our good? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.